Welcome back to Avocado Knits. Jordan Doucette. I have a problem this new year. You may recall that in an earlier episode I mentioned that I'm an abuse survivor and that I considered that there were many horrible things that many of us did, that none of us was blameless, and I still do believe that. I believe I may also have mentioned that 
our family had worked really hard to reforge our relationships and to grow to trust one another again. And I did believe that that was true until I went home for Christmas. Now it has been six years since I left home and I left home with a leaving a strict injunction that my father was not to have any contact with me and my mother was could have some contact but not as my mother that I did not want her to be my mother anymore that she was untrustworthy did not have my best interests at heart and that uh, we could be friends but she was to recognize that she had no authority or um, I would recognize that she had no interest in me as other than a friend. I did not welcome her interference in any way. Now the reason I left that injunction with my mother and about my father, I should explain, he has a, um, a condition <laughs> which at that time uh, led him to be extremely emotionally and verbally abusive. And when I was younger, he was physically abusive but had decided he didn't want to be that kind of person when I was around uh, eight or nine years old and thereafter was only emotionally distant. <laughs> um, but he has worked really hard and tried really hard over the past several years. I will give him that. Anyway, at the time when I left and I told my mother um, that she was not to be my mother anymore, uh, the reason I did so was because um, of a number of things. First of all, she had, all my life, um, stood between us, the children, and uh, my dad. I believe she intended to be a sort of protector. But what she did, say, did do was she um, kept us from saying or doing anything uh, contrary to what my father wanted us to do. Now, that does not mean that we didn't uh, uh, rebel at various times. But the level of control that they had over the household was pretty impressive. And I was going through adolescence in my 20s because I had had to be an adult in my teen years. My older sister died and my parents just went, I don't know, they, they disappeared. They had abandoned us. Uh, and I understand how terrible it is to lose a child, but when you have five other children, I consider that to be just incomprehensible, that you would emotionally abandon all of them and spend all your time mourning the one who's gone, especially when you supposedly believe that you're still going to have her forever, um, which is what uh, the religion that my parents um, espouse indicates. So. Anyway, they were gone <laughs> while I was in my teen years, except to lay down rules. And so I basically raised myself, um, and I had to be an adult very young. Um, and then I basically went through adolescence in my 20s, trying to figure things out, trying to not figure out how to be my own person. And I was finally trying to stand up to my father and talk back to him and say, no, I will not let you. Um, determine who I am. An example of that, uh, one time in my late 20s, um, I was living at home for a little while after a trip overseas and I was serving a, with, 
with the youth in our church. And so I'd had some of them over, some of the little girls, 11, about 11 years old, over um, to make cookies, and we left a mess. There were a number of dishes that hadn't been washed, um, but really it wasn't a very big mess. And I thought, well, I'm tired, I'll do it the next day. And my dad, whose particular challenges made him very sensitive to anything being out of place, um, got very angry with me and told me that by leaving it till tomorrow when I had promised that I would clean it all up uh, when the, the young people got there, or when they were done, that, that constituted a breach of promise, that I was a liar. And I tried to be very reasonable with him and said that didn't mean I was a liar, that uh, meant that um, I had mistaken the matter, that I had thought I would be able to do all of it today, but I was very tired and I will do it the next day and um, it's a very small mess and I would appreciate a little forbearance and he got very angry at me and then violence ensued but um, so anyway <laughs> and then I called the cops so I was trying to stand up for myself and my mother kept telling me just keep your mouth shut don't do anything to make him upset basically don't exist and she told me, this is the thing that really got me, at, this, at a point when I had really gotten my father really angry, so that, where he was sending me <laughs> many, many, many emails full of hate, <laughs> full of hate-filled rhetoric um, for days and days at a time to the point where I couldn't even check my email anymore without being assaulted by the fact that my father was spending all of his time hating me and trying to bludgeon me into... Um, into uh, into giving up, basically, into being whatever he wanted me to be, into being quiet and being basically non-existent. So my mom came over. I was, um, but at that time I was living with my grandparents, and my mom came over there and told me that she thought that I should just back down, apologize, and let my father have the. Um, have the have control over the situation and I said no I really felt that this was important for me to stand up and and say I will not be pushed around I will not be bullied and she said that she felt she'd had um, a, pr a prayer answered that and the answer was that we should be as quiet and small as possible in order that my dad could be okay and she told me that she thought that I should give up my bid for independence so that they could have peace at home. Yeah. So that was why I told her I didn't want her to be my mother anymore. Because I realized she didn't care about me. What she cared about was having home be something she could manage. She cared about maintaining the status quo. She didn't care about me growing into a whole independent person and what I thought of myself and whether I could respect myself. That was none of her concern. And whenever I would try to explain my concerns to her, she would tell me that I was overdoing it, I was overthinking things because she knew I had a history of depression. And I used to turn to her for help. 
and she would use that as a weapon against me and say, you know, dear, you know, you're just really overreacting. So this is what happened <laughs> about six years ago. And they both worked really, really hard after that, I have to say, to get me back into the family, to um, reestablish relationships and make them better than they were before. Um, and it took a couple years, and I was very wary, but eventually I started to accept overtures. And um, so for the past four years or so, I've been participating in family things, and it was really nice to have a family where I felt like I was respected, um, where I had the right to set boundaries for myself in my relationships with other people. Well, <laughs> this last Christmas, this, this one that we've just passed, I was uh, back there with my husband and um, but only, it was only there for a couple of days before my mom started making conversation. And we'd had a conversation like this on the phone a couple of weeks earlier, three or four weeks earlier, where she had said, isn't it nice that what happened in our family wasn't nearly as bad as what happened to some of these other people? And that none of us is, you know, permanently scarred. <laughs> And I told her, wait a minute, <laughs> what happened with us really was very bad. And some of us are permanently scarred. In fact, all of us are permanently scarred. Uh, I can't think of a single member of our family who doesn't have some issue that makes their lives very difficult, that they have to struggle with every day, that is a result of the way that we grew up. And. So she got upset that I pointed that out to her, and she said, why can't we all just move on? And for me, that was, that was disrespectful, because I have a handicap now as a result of this experience that makes it so there are kind of, there, there's employment I can't take. There are achievements I cannot complete that otherwise I would be able to do. I'm very intelligent, I'm very capable, but this condition is a handicap and I can't do it all. And this condition is something that according to the best knowledge we have, I was genetically predisposed to determine, but I wouldn't, to, um, to develop, but I wouldn't have developed it had I not endured the situation like I grew up in, in our family. So that family experience has basically crippled me for life. And she wants me to move on and to act like it never happened. Well, that was a fairly simple conversation. Um, <laughs> she was not very happy with the end of it, and neither was I. But I thought that I'd made myself pretty clear. But here I was at home, and uh, we were driving back from a place where we'd spent uh, a couple of hours together getting some stuff done. And things had gone pretty well so far. And she starts having this, a very similar conversation with me, telling me about a couple of women that she knew who had been um, battered, one when she was a child and another by her first husband. And how one of them had, was still was um, handicapped, physically handicapped from that experience. And the other had recently died from complications um, that had 
from trauma that had happened years and years earlier and she said isn't it great that our family didn't have to go through anything like that my mom doesn't know although she could figure it out because she's intelligent when she puts her mind to it but she doesn't know that people with my condition are much more likely to commit suicide than people who uh, do not have this or related conditions. There's a very real chance that I could die as a result of complications resulting from trauma inflicted on me as a child. Isn't it nice that in our family we never had to go through anything like that? So again, we had this same conversation, and she said, well, I went through it too. I had terrible things happen. I lost a child, and I said, that's not the same as being abused and having your identity determined by someone else. And she said, well, I was there too, and I don't remember all those things happening. And I said, there's a lot of things that you don't remember, things that I pointed out to you at the time, and you said, what are you talking about? Things that just you didn't perceive. Or I thought to myself, things that you chose not to perceive. And she said, um, and I was there with your father too. And he was, um, he uh, said terrible things to me too. And I said, yes, but you are his wife and I am his daughter. It's a different relationship. And she said, yeah, 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 I know. Because we had that conversation years ago. She could not understand. She said, why can't you just kind of brush him off like I do? And I said, mom, <laughs> he's your husband. You might be able to say, well, he's just being irritable today. But he's my father. He helps determine my universe. And this is when I was still, um, it was either in my late teens or early 20s. And I tried to help her understand because she adores her father. If her father treated her the way my father treated me, she would be crushed. She's always seeking approval. She would not have anything to fall back on. And yet she's unwilling to understand how this could be traumatic for me. Later though, she said something that helped me understand why she was so intent on maintaining her version of reality and on um, disqualifying or invalidating my own. She said, it's just in my personality to move forward. I'm trying to make a new life for myself. It's a way of maintaining my sanity. I went back to our hotel room and tried to figure out why what she was saying bothered me so much. And it took me a couple of days, but I finally figured it out. This section from George Orwell's 1984 describes it pretty darn well. An oblong slip of paper had appeared between O'Brien's fingers. For perhaps five seconds, it was within the, within the angle of Winston's vision. It was a photograph, and there was no question of its identity. It was THE photograph. 
It was another copy of the photograph of Jones, Aronson, and Rutherford at the party function in New York, which he had chanced upon eleven years ago and promptly destroyed. For only an instant it was before his eyes, then it was out of sight again. But he had seen it, unquestionably he had seen it. He made a desperate, agonizing effort to wrench the top half of his body free. It was impossible to move so much as a centimeter in any direction. For the moment, he had even forgotten the dial. All he wanted was to hold the photograph in his fingers again, or at least to see it. It exists, he cried. No, said O'Brien. He stepped across the room. There was a memory hole in the opposite wall. O'Brien lifted the grating. Unseen, the frail slip of paper was whirling away on the current of warm air. It was vanishing in a flash of flame. O'Brien turned away from the wall. Ashes, he said. Not even identifiable ashes. Dust. It does not exist. It never existed. But it did exist. It does exist. It exists in memory. I remember it. You remember it. I do not remember it, said O'Brien. Winston's heart sank. That was double-think. He had a feeling of deadly helplessness. If he could have been certain that O'Brien was lying, it would not have seemed to matter. But it was perfectly possible that O'Brien had really forgotten the photograph. And if so, then already he would have forgotten his denial of remembering it, and forgotten the act of forgetting. How could one be sure that it was simple trickery? Perhaps that lunatic dislocation in the mind could really happen. That was the thought that defeated him. O'Brien was looking down at him speculatively. More than ever, he had the air of a teacher taking pains with a wayward but promising child. There is a party slogan dealing with the control of the past, he said. Repeat it, if you please. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past, repeated Winston obediently. Who controls the present controls the past, said O'Brien, nodding his head with slow approval. Is it your opinion, Winston, that the past has real existence? Again the feeling of helplessness descended upon Winston. His eyes flitted towards the dial. He not only did not know whether yes or no was the answer that would save him from pain, he did not even know which answer he believed to be the true one. O'Brien smiled faintly. You are no metaphysician, Winston, he said. Until this moment you had never considered what is meant by existence. I will put it more precisely. Does the past exist concretely in space? Is there somewhere or other a place a world of solid objects where the past is still happening? No. Then where does the past exist, if at all? In records. It is written down. In records. And? In the mind. Human memories. In memory. Very well, then. We, the party, control all records. And we control all memories then we control the past, do we not? But how can you stop people remembering things, cried Winston again, momentarily forgetting the dial. It is involuntary. It is outside oneself. How can you control memory? You have not controlled mine. 
O'Brien's manner grew stern again. He laid his hand on the dial. On the contrary, he said, you have not controlled it. That is what has brought you here. You are here because you have failed in humility, in self-discipline. You would not make the act of submission, which is the price of sanity. You preferred to be a lunatic, a minority of one. Only the disciplined mind can see reality, Winston. You believe that reality is something objective, external, existing in its own right. You also believe that the nature of reality is self-evident. When you delude yourself into thinking that you see something, you assume that everyone else sees the same thing as you. But I tell you, Winston, that reality is not external. Reality exists in the human mind and nowhere else, not in the individual mind, which can make mistakes, and in any case soon perishes, only in the mind of the party, which is collective and immortal. Whatever the party holds to be the truth is truth. It is impossible to see reality except by looking through the eyes of the party. That is the fact that you have got to relearn, Winston. It needs an act of self-destruction, an effort of the will. You must humble yourself before you can become sane. George Orwell's 1984, Part 3, a section from Chapter 2. After a couple of conversations with my mom over Christmas break, I tried to figure all of this out in my journal, and I wrote a couple of different entries. The first one uh, was on the Wednesday um, before Christmas. Being with my parents and family is confusing. Mom keeps rewriting our family history in her favor. Uh, there's also, <laughs> she also said um, recently that she wanted to start a company uh, for parents of, uh, of Hollywood teenagers called Let Us Show You How to Bring Up Your Child Star because she thought that the parents of people like Miley Cyrus and Lindsay Lohan obviously had done something wrong and that she knew how to make it better. And I did tell her that um, title, company title, was in no way going to get anyone to solicit her services, but what I didn't tell her until she started bringing all of this up again about how wonderful it was that all these bad things did not happen in our family was, um, how are you going to run a company like that, Mom, with no experience? Anyway, <laughs> she keeps rewriting our family history in her favor and expecting me to participate and be sympathetic inside this bubble of pretense. I find this behavior presumptuous and disrespectful, and so I nail that falsity down when she presents me with it. I'm not a very cooperative person, I'm afraid. But I was disturbed yesterday when she did it to my face. I felt that my identity and role were threatened by her determined pretense. So then I had to go back and think about it some more. And then on Christmas Day, I finally figured out a lot more what I think is going on. The reason I felt so threatened by my mother's alternate history making is that this is what she did while I was growing up, while dad was so ill and dangerous. She controlled the situation to some extent by asserting scripts for all of us to follow. That's S-C-R-I-P-T-S, like in a play. 
and by denying that anything was happening that she could not control. She calls this, quote, treating people as if they were behaving the way they should be behaving in the first place, unquote. It is one of her favorite strategies in life and work, and she is very good at it. She does not recognize her his alternate history making as a choice of strategy so much as an aspect of her personality. As she says, it's just my personality to look for the good. When pressed, she claims that this is how she stays sane. I have not yet pointed out to her that creating a fantasy world is hardly textbook sane behavior. What is harmful about this strategy is that it pulls people into a pattern of behavior that may deny physical or other psychological stimuli. These stimuli don't get a place in the alternate reality. So when people sucked into the mom vortex react to such stimuli, the validity of their reactions, feelings, fears, urges, etc., is denied either outright by mom or through exclusion from accepted behavioral scripts. The result for those people in the mom vortex is a life like that described in Orwell's 1984. Everyone becomes dependent on the central government to define their roles and thoughts and abilities in order to break and in order to break free, they have to talk back to the scripts that tell them that they are too weak and childlike, or deviant, or mentally incompetent to understand what is real. This is a mothering model in which the mother will devour anyone close to her, everyone close to her, in order to maintain her power. She used to tell me, I would never survive on my own, away from the family. I don't think she understands that the point of mothering is to teach your children how to be independent of you. I think she was always seeking to make us dependent on her because that made her feel good about herself. Well, it may sound at this point like I really loathe my mother, and I don't. See, this is the thing. She's so likable. She's incredibly likable, and she's so vulnerable in many ways. As soon as she lets go of control, she's incredibly vulnerable, and, it, and yet she brings out this desire in you to protect her. It's another script. Now she's vulnerable, and you need to protect her by sacrificing whatever it was you were trying to stand up for. She's hurt. It's your job to make her feel better. Again, <laughs> not very good mothering. <laughs> Miley Cyrus, you're better off. You're better off on your own, or at least with your own family. I think the worst part about all this is that I feel like I've been duped. You know, for a long time, I would talk about what had happened in our family, and I would, when I was very angry, uh, before my parents tried to make amends, before my dad especially worked very hard, try to make amends, I would blame it on him, and, and, you know, that's understandable. There would, there was a lot of overt negative action that was performed by him. <laughs> there was no getting around it, um, and I'm not excusing what he did. I still think it was terrible, but up until just before I left where my family lived and went off by myself. I had thought of my mother as an ally. 
she made you think of her as an ally, as her, as your protector, as the one who understood you, the one who could get things done, the one who sneaked you money um, when uh, Dad told you that, you know, four four months before college starts that you're going to have to pay for it all yourself and you can't live at home. But now her revisionist history-making is making me revise what I know of the family history as well. I only started understanding how she could be in some ways so very dependable and intelligent and in other ways so obtuse. <laughs> I only started understanding that maybe there was some cover-up going on even in her own head. And I don't pretend to to know everything about her. I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but I'm a keen observer. And I've been working hard at making appropriate deductions. And seeing all of this come down to these few moments over Christmas just makes me feel that I've lost something, that I lost an innocence, a belief that our family was healed. Definitely, I lost my ability to trust my mother, and everything looks different now.
All the music on this podcast was provided by Mevio.com.